Hello, it is 7 a.m. in New York, 1 p.m. in Johannesburg, and 6 p.m. in Bangkok. Welcome to In Transit with Sunday Bean. I'm an intercultural strategist, transformation facilitator, and solution-oriented coach. And I am on a mission to help you adapt and succeed through any life transition. What if I told you that exposing your kids to a few specific experiences could result in a two times higher likelihood of developing heart disease or cancer, seven times higher likelihood of becoming an alcoholic, and an increased risk of attempted suicide by 1,200%. If you were like me, you would run away from these experiences as fast as you could. But the thing is, when we are living complex lives, when our lives are in transit, some of those things we can control, some of those things are out of our control, these experiences might impact our lives. And today I've invited two guests to help us understand what kind of experiences we're talking about and how we don't have to shy away from even hard things because there are things within our power, how we can support ourselves and our kids. So it is my heartfelt joy to welcome Lauren Wells and Tanya Crossman today on In Transit. Welcome, ladies. Thank you so much. Hi. We're happy to to have you. Thank you. I'll give a quick introduction for those of you who don't know your work. I'll start with Lauren. Lauren Wells is the founder and CEO of TCK Training and author of three books, Raising Up a Generation of Healthy Third Culture Kids, The Grief Tower, and Unstacking Your Grief Tower. Lauren spearheaded the methodology of prevented TCK care that TCK Training was founding on. She also uses her personal experience as a TCK in her education and childhood development to support TCKs. By the way, for people who don't know what a TCK is, it's a third culture kid, someone living outside of their parents' passport cultures, and for those who serve them. She's worked with over a thousand parents and TCK caregivers and has trained staff from over 80 organizations. Lauren grew up in Tanzania, East Africa, and now lives in the USA with her husband and two daughters. We're also joined by Tanya. Tanya Crossman is a director of research and education at TCK Training and the author of Misunderstood, the impact of growing up overseas in the 21st century. Tanya has 17 years of experience in counting, working with international families, and has worked with groups from over five continents. Conducting research to learn about the experiences of children growing up globally is part of her work. Tanya grew up in Australia and the U.S. and has lived in China and Cambodia. As an adult, she's fluent in written and spoken Mandarin, and she currently lives with her parents in Australia while awaiting papers to join her husband in the USA. I feel like you've been waiting forever, Tanya. Yeah, it does feel like forever. (laughs) All right. Both of you do know what it means, as you can see from your bios, to live life in transit. Both of you have experience uh, as a child growing up where your lives were defined by being in transit. And now in your adult life, you are supporting others. Um, Thank you for the work that you have done, uh, your contributions in your writing and in your training. You are doing a service to so many families around the world. So I just want to say that to start off. It is our pleasure. 
So let's let's dive in here. Um, I want to talk about what you call our ACEs or ACEs. These are childhood adverse experiences. And can you help us understand what does that mean and why is that important for people who are living highly mobile lives? Yeah, so ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experience, and this is a framework that people have used for years and years. There have been over 80 studies done on ACE scores, Um, so it's a really well-known framework that's been used worldwide, and it looks at three different categories, abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. And within those categories, there are specific factors And all totaled up, they equal 10. And so when we talk about an ACE score, it's the number of those out of 10 um, experiences that they've had. So for example, sexual abuse or having a parent with a mental illness that's directly impacting the family, those sorts of things would be those ACE scores. Okay. So when I hear that, and I know that... um those categories are not present in our immediate nuclear family. Why should I still care? When we think about those 10 factors, those 10 types of difficult experiences, there's a few in there that we don't realize are quite common. Uh, Two of those experiences were uh, more about a kid's perception of their growing up. So we talk about emotional neglect and physical neglect. We're talking about a child's perception of safety, physical safety and emotional safety. So did I feel loved, special, important? Did I feel that my family was connected and supportive? Did I feel secure that there would be food on the table and I would have clean clothes to wear that someone would be able to take me to the doctor if I needed to go? Mm. And so it's about how secure they felt in that provision of emotional safety and physical safety. So perhaps their parents did love them, but if they didn't feel loved and important and special, that would count as an adverse childhood experience. So can I jump in here with a story? And actually, when you said about whether they feel safe, my eyes welled up. I don't know if you could have seen that on the video, but... I'm, I'm all emotional about it. I'm throwing pens over here. <laughs> um, I, so what happened when you said that is I was walking down the street. Oh, this is really tapping into me as a mother. And I, it's, it's taking me off guard because I didn't expect this. But I was walking down the street with my son. We had left West Africa. I remember in West Africa, for those who followed my journey, we had a wonderful time there. We loved living in Burkina Faso and Ouagadougou, but we had to leave because um, there was a terrorist attack. This had been after a political uprising and attempted coup d'etat. And then we got to South Africa and we lived in a gated community, the safest community in the area, right? Like probably in you know Southern Africa, it had amazing reputation for safety and was walking down the street with my son. And he said, mom, I don't feel safe here. And I said, honey, he was under 10. I said, you don't feel safe here? I'm like, look at this amazing space. We're totally safe. He goes, you want to know why? We don't have a guard out front. So he didn't feel safe in South Africa because it's a gated community, tons of space to run and drive and bikes, et cetera. But in Burkina Faso, where he was one when we arrived and we left right before he was four, we lived in a space where there was a guard in our our home, outside of the door, right by the gate. And it was 
wasn't because it was super dangerous. It's kind of what you did to be a good patron while you were there and someone to sort of facilitate any traffic that went in the house. And I thought, my kid doesn't feel safe because we don't have a guard out front of our house. And, and people who'd learned that we had a guard in Burkina Faso thought, oh my gosh, your kids must feel so unsafe. So the reason why I bring that up is I think my kids have grown up in, they have grown up in a space where we've cared for them and loved for them, but their perception of safety um, is not up to me. Yes. Right. What they made that mean, you know, if you're one to three and the coolest guy in the world is the guard that plays with you in the front yard by the sandbox. Right. And now he's gone. And now you're when this, all this open space. So I don't know. I think that's important. And the the reason why I share that that story so many times, all the kids would go to America and feel so unsafe because they weren't fences and they weren't compounds and they weren't, and it confused their parents. It confused them. And I want to say that because if people hear in the very beginning, I don't need to listen to this because we don't have abuse in our home. Our kids are safe Mm -hmm. and they stop listening that you might be missing something if you grow up in this highly mobile international community. So say more, say more about all of this. Well, the other thing is if you don't think it affects you, even if your family and your kids are completely safe, their peers might not be. Mm. which means they're going to be hearing about it in their community and in their friendships. And so even if it doesn't touch your kids directly, knowing what's happening in the community around them is really important so that you know how to talk to them and to support their friends when things Mm. are happening in your community. Can you give us an example? Well, we're going to give you some statistics in a minute. And when you start Mm. hearing those numbers, Think about how many kids are in your circle, in your kid's class at school, and therefore what percentage of them are affected. So even if your kid's safe, chances are their friends aren't all safe. Mm. Yeah, we looked at a lot. So just something to keep in mind. We looked at secondary trauma a bit in our research um, for that purpose because that's something that we had heard about a lot when we were even debriefing TCKs that maybe they didn't experience sexual abuse, but their friend Mm -hmm. confided that in them and no one else. And so that was something that they were carrying that was really difficult. And so it's important to recognize that because the stats show that it is high in our TCK community, whatever these these ACE scores are, it, it will impact maybe not only them, but the people around them as well. Sometimes we need to know the protective things that we can do um, that would even alleviate some of those things like what you were just talking about someday. Like with your son, we talk about helping kids to know what is in place and what is the plan. So what is in place that would keep you safe? Well, we have this gate and this gate only lets people in who have the right password or whatever. And that is why we have locks on our windows and we have locks on the doors and what's the plan if something did happen here is what we would do i think for so many of our tck's and just kids in general they're thinking well what if what if that does happen and it doesn't help for the parent to say well it's just not going to they need to be able to say well if it did here's what we would do here's the plan Mm -hmm. so when we're talking about 
numbers and percentages. What we're talking about is research that we did ourselves because we couldn't find the numbers anywhere. So we went and did it ourselves. And we surveyed 1,904 people who grew up with a globally mobile childhood. And we just got together their ACE scores, uh, what adverse experiences they had, and aspects of their demographics, so how often they moved, how much time they spent overseas, what kind of reasons they had for mobility, and what kind of schooling experiences they had, and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, and we put together a white paper, and we're working on a second white paper now, looking at some of these sort of specific um, factors that have gone into what happened for them. And some of the things we found were what we expected, and some of the things were a bit more shocking. And and we wanted to spread some of that information so people can be prepared. Because one of the biggest things we found is that a lot of this is associated with mobility, and a lot of this is associated with parents under stress. And mm. so supporting parents is super important because parents who are not being cared for themselves can't give kids what they need. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's important. Can you share more some of the statistics and the things that you learned? Yeah. So to begin with, um, one of the major comparison points we use is a big study that was done in the US with 17,000 Americans. That was kind of our benchmark uh, to compare the rates that we were seeing. Uh, some of the other bigger studies that have been done were kind of comparable. Some had lower numbers than what was in the American study, like uh, healthier numbers. So we use that as our benchmark. When you look at these you know, decades of research, when you have a score of four or more out of 10, you are at high risk. Those uh, negative consequences that you listed at the beginning Sunday, those happen, those risk factors are there when you have a score of four or higher. Now, 12.5% of Americans have a score of four or higher. In our survey of globally mobile people, 21% had that score, that high-risk score. That's one in five who are at risk of all of those things that you're talking about. Uh, then when we look at different groups, different sectors, different types of education, um, it was fairly similar. But the biggest takeaway from the survey was that when extreme mobility was part of the picture, when people were moving frequently, so moving location 10 or more times before age 18, moving house 15 or more times before age 18, they, that risk went from one in five to one in three had that high risk A score. I'm counting. I'm like, one, we move two, three, four, five. I'm, I'm counting in my head. How many times have we moved as a family mm. and have we reached, have we reached 10? Um, the other thing that I remember listening to an interview that you did and hearing that one, you know, why does this matter to our community? Our, our meaning the ones who are connected to the globally mobile community, why does that matter to us is because it's defined by high mobility. And what I also learned from your research is it's also mm -hmm. defined by a lack of preventative care mechanisms in place. Yes. I, I was a business kid. My family moved both within Australia and overseas because of my dad's job with IBM. And we got 
zero resources other than financial Mm -hmm. and practical Mm -hmm. you know we got plane tickets we got money for a house um but that was it I had never heard anything like culture shock or reverse culture shock or re-entry or third culture kids or global mobility or any of that I had no language I had no training neither did my mum neither did my sisters none of us knew any of this and so it wasn't until I was in my mid 20s, late 20s, and working with young people in China and doing research into their experiences. And I went, oh, that was me as well. And I've heard that story over and over again, that so many families don't get any support from the organizations that cause their mobility. Mm-hmm. And and that was what was important for me is this is where I get on like my high horse. <laughs> I'm like, you have an ethical responsibility If you are putting your people in this context to care that, isn't that called um, duty of care? Yes. Right? Duty of care. So it's like if I work for the military and I'm going to put a soldier out there, right? I'm going to send that person away for R&R to keep their central nervous system grounded, right? We have, there are certain industries that have, duty of care. And I think mobility is one of them. And I, now I'm going to go off on my high horse because, <laughs> because if you only think- <laughs> Oh, we are right here with you. <laughs> if you only think that people live exotic lives abroad, right? That this is like something super fancy pants. Watch your child cry when your parent leaves where they're not even making sound, right? Like watch that departure, watch the taxi leave. Yeah. Be by your kids at night when they are now ripped away from their friends and family because something changed, whether it was a corporate mandate change, something political change, some structure change. And now that child who's let's say 12 and is in that apex of needing friends and family, uh, you know, intensely, is now grieving. That is an impact yes. from the mobility. And I we need to take that seriously. And I am living that with my family. And I'm a specialist, right? Like I have all the tools. I have the people at my fingertips. And it's still hard. Yes. Right. So the, everybody's left off on their own who don't even know about this. It's like that's not responsible. Yeah. And what we see. So anytime the ACE score percentage like we talked about is higher than that 12 and a half percent of the CDC study that we were referring to as our control study in the United States. Anytime there's a people group that goes above that 12 and a half percent, they're considered an at-risk vulnerable population. So foster children, for example, would fit in that category. Children who are growing up um, in impoverished cities would fit into that category. But we don't often think of our TCKs as an at-risk vulnerable population. But I think if we did, we would care for them better. I think if we did, there would be more resources for how the care is done when like we said, when companies, organizations are sending them to do that life, we should be caring for them well because we are causing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So true. 
Oh, I, um, there are moments when things are hard. And as a parent, you're like, I'm out. <laughs> I'm yep. done. Like, you know, or you wonder if you've made the right choice. I still am deeply committed. I do not think that high mobility is a death sentence. I do not think it's damaging our kids. I am completely on board with if you support your children and like you said, yourself well, that it is totally worth it. So what what do we need to, to know about preventative care and, and our own maintenance of ourselves and for our kids? Yeah, so this is my favorite part to talk about because this is where the hope comes in, right? We talk about all these scary things and people say, well, then it sounds like raising TCKs is a terrible idea. And <laughs> all of us here know that there are amazing benefits that come from that life, but we can't tap into those benefits if we're not healthy and we're not doing well. And so we love the ACE framework because not only have a lot of studies, have many research studies been done on the ACE scores themselves, but there's been a lot of research done on what can happen in order to mitigate the impact of those ACEs in adulthood. So even if we can't prevent those things from happening, what can we do to provide a a buffer. I like to think of it as like bubble wrapping your child. How can you bubble wrap your child so that they can get through the hard things without damage? And so we look at those positive childhood experiences. They're called pieces as a framework that we use for that. And we call those our protective factors. Those are our bubble wrap. And there are seven of them. I won't go through all of them, but it has to do um, with things inside the home and then things outside the home. So inside the home, it's that they feel safe. They feel loved and cared for. They feel like they are a priority. Outside the home, it's that they have a peer group, that they belong in a multi-generational group where people know them and love them, that there are community traditions that they look forward to doing with those peers and that multi-generational group. Those things are all really critical for buffering our kids, but in the in-transit life, sometimes those things are hard to maintain consistently. And so we need to be intentional about how we're doing that. When I work with families, I often will go through those, those pieces with them and they'll say something like, well, our kids don't have friends because we live on a compound. There's no other kids here. So how can we just support them for the rest of their developmental years without them having friends. Well, mm -hmm. that that doesn't work. They they need that. That is a positive childhood experience that they can't just be expected to grit and bear it through mm -hmm. and hope that they do well in adulthood. There are so many things that come from that. And so even looking at those as a framework for what do we need to make sure we are aiming for as a family all the time. So if we don't have some of those in this moment, how are we aiming to find those in our new community? Mm -hmm. It's so important. And to give you a sense of why this matters so much, some of the research has been done around pieces. Uh, they looked at kids who had, well, then adults who had these high A scores, but who also had high pieces. So if you had six to seven of the pieces in your childhood, even if you also had high A scores, your risk 
of having depression or poor mental health overall dropped 72%. And you were three and a half times more likely to have healthy social and emotional support as an adult. That is incredible, right? So I Mm. was just with my kids at dinner and we were celebrating their first six weeks at a new school system, new language, new country. I mean, they're studying foreign languages in foreign languages, right? Like it's, it's a, it's a, a, it's a big challenge. And I, and being the nerdy interculturalist I am, I'm like, let's celebrate this milestone. Let's acknowledge what's hard. You know, we're at the table and they're like, mom, it's not that big of a deal. We get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> that, that it was like, oh, we know this is hard. We're celebrating it. Like, can you knock it off supporting us? <laughs> it was so sweet. It was such a sweet recognition of like, your kids will stand in their own power when they know that, you know, they're supported from the outside, you know? Mm-hmm. Um I just think I want to pause for the listeners for a second. And that is so important that, that the impact is mitigated by the preventative care, by the things that we can do. Yes. And I'll even speak for someone who grew up with very little uh, turbulence in a childhood life. I also didn't have the opportunity to build skills to navigate adversity until I got older and I was away from the support of my family. Mm. So as a parent, I am always like rooting myself in the knowledge of if my kids go through hard things now with my support, I always say to my kids, I'm like, whatever level of challenge you're feeling, we're going to match it with the level of support. Right. So if you're getting this much challenge, we'll give you this much support. If you're getting, I'm doing my hands with a video, but in audio, you won't hear it. If I, if I give them, you know, a level 10 um, level of challenge, I'm going to give them a level 10 of support. And I think that gives your kids a chance to build their own resilience in a safe space. Right. Even, and I, you tell me where I'm wrong. I would suggest maybe even supporting a kid in a way that goes beyond growing up without adversity, without mobility, without bumps, because then they have never had a chance to develop their skills. Tell me where I'm wrong. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think we we see that constantly, that resilience building happens through hard things. When hard things come and we have the support, like you said, that matches those hard things so that we can get through them, it it turns those internal narratives into, I can do hard things. I can get through this. I can make it like I am strong. When though, those hard things keep coming and there's nobody there. And it's at those times that they feel lonely and isolated and like, I'm not loved and I don't, they're, they're not supported that each of those hard things knocks them down further. And what we see is that those internal messages become really self-deprecating. They turn into things like, I am weak. I am not okay. I'm not whatever it is, but those internal messages don't be, they don't become resilience building. They become fragility increasing Mm -hmm. and that doesn't help them in adulthood. And so we, we talk about 
adult TCKs being resilient and that being a trait of adult TCKs, well, sometimes we see that, but sometimes we don't. Um, so it's not just that they went through hard things. It's the support that they had during it. And that's what I get triggered when people say, oh, it, I notice this as a mother as well. When people who don't understand say, oh, your kids will be fine. Kids are resilient. And I'm like, you are not right here right now, you know? And we can't just throw our kids into the cold water, the hot fire, unless we're there to give them, like I said, the support that they need. It's not just doing hard things unattended <laughs> builds yes. resilience. Like you said, it will destroy them. And I always say this, resilience is built in community. Yes. Yeah. And, right? and the other piece that's so important about this is that we can't expect parents to turn around and have limitless energy to match their kids' needs unless parents are getting their needs met. When we look at the three um, ACE factors that are the highest in these mobile kids that we surveyed, all three of them to us reflect the parents' stress and needs. So the three that were particularly high were emotional abuse, emotional neglect, and parental mental illness. So emotional abuse and neglect were four times higher in third culture kids than they were in our the American control study, and parental mental illness was two times higher. And now that tracks. There was a study that came out 10 years ago that said that showed that expats were at two and a half times the risk of um, depression and anxiety as um, domestic workers. And then when you look at the emotional abuse and emotional neglect, when you're looking at that rate, that is not that half of expatriate parents are bad parents. That's the parents are under stress and do not have the resources they need to, to give to their kids when their kids are also under stress in these lives of transition. Um, I think we have to come at this with a lot of grace for parents who need support themselves. We need to take the stigma away from needing help and asking for help, whether that's counselling, whether that's support groups, whether that's parenting tools and help, whatever it is that works for you and that you need, get that help. We, Like you said, we, we support each other in community. Nobody can do this alone. Absolutely. Oh, I think, and this is so interesting when I think about it. I, what I tell people all the time is, if I ask you how you are and you say, I'm fine, I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> that is wisdom know, right there. You know, I know too much, you know, like I just know too much about how hard things can be. And I know, you know, in the, my own transitions, in the work with my clients, you know, with the work of my coaches, it's like, I know the real deal. <laughs> and, um, um I, and I love that you talk about taking the stigma away and that same framework of let's match the level of support with a level of challenge it has to apply to us as parents too. Exactly. Yeah. I had a friend uh, I was working with on a project just last week said someone came into her office and said, oh, how are you doing? She went, oh, and they're like, that bad, hun. She's like, wait, I can act better than that. <laughs> I'm a better actress <laughs> than that. I can put on my happy face. Like, and she's a counselor, right? Yeah. There's this, and, and it was this, this tongue in cheek acknowledgement that we do, we act fine, 
And mm-hmm. especially in the last few years when there have been these extra weights and pressures on top of what is already often a stressful work environment, life environment, parenting environment, when yep. you're living lives in transit, when you're living lives of cultural complexity, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're so good at acting, but if we don't take that mask down and get the resources we need, we can't parent, we can't be part of our friendships and communities and families with, we can't give and receive at the level that all of us need. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I'll make sure that in the show notes, um, they have access to your books, your communities, um, because it's, it's, it's frankly a trajectory changing experience for you and for your kids, right? It's something important and, and worth taking seriously. So we've talked about the, the risk, we've talked about the preventative measures and the critical relationship between taking care of ourselves as caregivers. And I'm not talking just parents, teachers who are working with, you know, mobile kids, psychologists, counselors, like everybody who cares for this community um, and how we need to seek support that matches the challenge. I, I wouldn't mind um, now turning to can you I, for Can a I also bit. just yeah. pop in there? I, I'm not even a parent, right? And, but mm-hmm. even just as a partner, mm-hmm. um, having, you know, transition and being in transit is, is stressful just on a couple. Yes. Uh, and so you need external help just to be the present for each other a lot of yes. the time. Absolutely. Even when I was single when you're part of a community helping each other and being part of each other's lives, you you don't need to be in a nuclear family to need help to be part of your community. There, there is no um, point at which now I deserve to get help. Yes, Actually, absolutely. in so many ways, being single was, was more difficult because mm-hmm. I had to take full responsibility and ownership for getting all of the things done. I didn't yeah. have anyone to do that with. And so... I think often there's this expectation that it's so much easier when you're single because you don't have to do all these things. You have all this extra spare time. Well, no, because there's only one of me to do all of the things. So like I said, if we can take the stigma off, we all need help and we all need community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. I think that's important. Um, we'll say it louder for the ones in the back. <laughs> um, I, want, I want to focus on you and your own transitions. Um, obviously, the work that you do probably impacts your own lives um, in direct and, and indirect ways. I don't mind if you, you don't mind. I'd like to hear a little bit more about the transitions that you're feeling right now. Um, and, you know, are you in a phase where you would feel more like an internal uh, or external transformation. I'm curious, Lauren, what about you? Yeah. Um, I think on a two different levels, on a macro level and a micro level. So on a macro level, we moved from South Carolina to North Georgia in January. So we're not too far from a year that we've been here. And so that transition, um, it has been a really good transition. And also like any transition, there's been there's been bumps along the way. Um, internally, I've been working on building community and letting myself <laughs> um, build community because sometimes it's easy to, especially for, for those of us who all um, have, have careers, it's easy to just do the career and 
be busy doing the career and thinking, well, that's fine. That's sufficient. Um, but actually spending time building community is super important. Um, but that definitely takes some internal motivation. And then on a micro level, I've been traveling a lot the last um, month and a half. This is I'm here in a hotel room um, right now. This is trip number four in five weeks. And so it's just been a busy travel season. Um, but I go home tomorrow and I'll transition back into mm-hmm. the routine of being a mom and taking the kids to school and packing lunches and, and all of that. And that's always a tough transition for me of I am this career person coming and speaking and staying in a hotel room. And that's a very different thing than like, oh, now I have to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every single day. <laughs> and <laughs> and both, both are important jobs. They're important work. Um, but that transition is, it, it is tricky. It's a hard one. And so what do you do to shape your own processes as you're transitioning between these identities, between your roles? How do you, how do you use your own preventative care? to do that. Yeah. I definitely reach out to friends to just kind of verbally process. Um, we use Marco Polo. I don't know if you all Mm -hmm. are familiar with that tool, but it's phenomenal when you have people all over the world, um, which I do. And so trying to just kind of verbally process is really helpful for me. Um, also just getting into a good mental space as far as this is all important work. Um, it can be easy to think like, this is where I'm saving the world. And then at home is where I'm doing things that are significantly less exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, and so to try to, to just mentally remember, this is all so, so important and caring well for my own family is more important than telling other people to care well for their own families. Mm -hmm. Um, and I need to just Mm -hmm. constantly remember that that looks way less shiny than it might seem like it Mm -hmm. should. Caring well for my own family means wiping snot off my kid's nose or whatever. Um, And that that's still doing that good work of caring for your family well. Um, But it's, yeah. Absolutely. I always say my glamorous life. (laughs) It's like, it's like a good day when it's only snot. You know what I mean? (laughs) For sure. So what is, um, what is ambitious for you right now? You know, for some of us, it's doing less for some of us, it's doing more or something completely different. How about you, Lauren? Yeah. So it was funny that you, it's funny that you say that. Cause when I read that question, I thought, I don't know that I have anything good to say because right now I'm doing a lot of maintaining the things that have been started in the last three years. But then I was thinking, well, it is also ambitious to just maintain and keep doing the good things well um, without continually adding new. So that's so, where we're at right can, now. I love can I just say, I find that hilarious because I look at the goals that the company has and I think they're all incredibly ambitious. <laughs> it's so good. Well, we Tanya, just think tell so us- differently. <laughs> tell us about yes. you, Tanya. Tell us what transitions are you feeling right now? All of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so all at the same time. I made a comment earlier about like you know it's been forever apart from my husband, 
Uh, it has been two years and seven months since my husband and I lived in the same country, continent. Uh, so, yep, almost exactly, actually. Tomorrow will be exactly two years and seven months. Um, yes, yeah, so we have seen each other for six months of that time in two, three-month windows, one in the country he lives in and one in the country I live in, neither of which was the country we were living in when the pandemic started. So, yeah, we we lost everything. And we lost our country, our home, both of our businesses, all of our savings. And so it's been an incredible season of everything getting pulled out from underneath you. And so when I say everything, I mean everything. Everything is in transition. And and especially for me because I'm in the country we're not staying in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I live in constant limbo of, you know, if I got papers tomorrow I would leave. Now, I won't because the whole thing's a debacle and it'll probably be another year before I can go over um, if I'm lucky. But, you know, there's still this sense that you can never settle. And so all of the strategies that I've developed over the years no longer applied. And I found all all the strategies for self-care and for looking after my mental health and for community and for support and for settling in a new place and for transitioning well and for arriving, like none of them applied and none of them worked. And and I crashed and I've had to completely relearn how to be. And so <laughs> uh, transition has been, it has literally been everything. It's been relearning life. Um, and, and I'm a person who's always been sort of internally led in transition and I've gone into a season where my entire life has been shaped externally. And having to respond to that has been just (laughs) paradigm shifting. I was Um, good. That's exactly what I had in my mind. And I thank you for sharing that because I know that you're not alone. I know there's a lot of people who are listening and for you to give voice to that, I think is really important um, because it's often hidden. Yes. Right. Again, like I said, we, you and could say how it's, it's so hard to articulate that. I yeah. couldn't articulate that even six months ago, probably. Yep. Yep. Um, and I, I was just um, interviewed for a, a piece that was on NPR this week and talking through it with the, the correspondent who created the piece. She said, talking to me was really interesting because I had answers to questions that none of the other people she talked to did because I've been in this for so long. I've had time to think through and articulate so much more of the process mm-hmm. um, because, yeah, I've had two and a half years to get my head around what I've what I've not just been through but been in because I've stayed in it. Yeah, Usually yeah. you don't stay in limbo this long. I've been in it so long I've, I've had a chance to develop in this place and it has led to a lot of personal growth, not easy or welcome necessarily, but um, but yep. that doesn't mean it's bad growth. Most right. growth is good. I always say that um, we often confuse learning and growth. Learning is what we choose to do, and it's um, it feels safe. And growth is comes from the outside in, and it is uncomfortable. Like you, (laughs) it's, it's hard. So what have you done in all of this to shape this transformation that you're going through right now? (sighs) I have tried to make good choices. And a lot of that has been about around my health. I have a lot of chronic health conditions. Um, 
And so doing my best to, to learn how to deal with that, the things that I have control over and the things that I don't, but also my mental health. So recognizing when I'm in depression and that the depression I've dealt with my whole life, my strategies no longer worked. Well, if my strategies no longer work, I need help from the outside. So I've seen two or three different psychologists or counselors in that time. Um, I've had an incredible GP uh, medical doctor who has helped me with that. I've been on different medication. I've gotten all the different kinds of help I need. I've I've used all of the different apps to connect with different friends in different countries because everyone uses something yep. different. Marco Polo is one of those, <laughs> yep. Lauren. Um, and you know, just not being alone in it. I've also relied very much on being an auntie. Um, when I when I was first stuck here, because I was stuck, I the border closed and I couldn't go home. I was on a business trip. I wasn't even planning to be in this country. Mm. Um, but I have little nieces and nephews. Uh, they're currently two, four, four and a half and six and a half. Mm. And they are adorable and they love me and I love them. And when I was stuck in that first sort of six months a year, I felt guilty if I felt happy because how can I be happy when my husband's on the other side of the ocean? Mm-hmm. It just, mm-hmm. it felt like a betrayal, mm. but I could always be happy around them. It was always the right thing to spend time with them. And so I really leaned into family and to spending time with them and being an auntie and they kept me in the moment um present they keep me present because it is very hard to be thinking about something else when you have a four-year-old tugging on your skirt um (laughs) or demanding five more books Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. you know it's leaning into what is good in this season and, and what keeps me present in the moment um has helped me grow so much recognizing some of these negative thought patterns I had because I can't hide from them anymore. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and choosing wow. to lean into it. So yeah, that's amazing. That's why since COVID, my thing has been, let's make this the best, worst thing that ever happened to us. For those well, who we, are- Josh yeah. and I talked about the least worst decisions. We're making the least worst decisions, <laughs> right? So good. Like, we don't have any good choices, so we'll make the least bad ones. <laughs> These are beautiful new world strategies, right? Like it's so yes. good. Um, no. So, what is the best so then worst thing? I'm going to add that to my vocabulary. <laughs> so, what is um, what's ambitious for you right now, Tanya? Um, ambitious for me is balance. Mm-hmm. It's it's just ordinary balance. It's feeding myself regularly without my husband looking over my shoulder because mm-hmm. he's the one who notices when I skip meals. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. you know getting up from the computer and stretching instead of sitting down for six hours. It's Mm -hmm. setting mini goals, not just I want to get this project done, but okay, let's break the project down into pieces. It's balancing the work I want to do for myself and the work I want to do for my job and the time I want to spend with my family. And yeah, just, just balance and daily life and being present. And for me, that's, that's really ambitious. It is very ambitious. Right. No, it's beautiful. Thank you so much. I've just enjoyed being with both of you so much today. Thank you for your time. Um, I think we've hit some really important messages that I hope people come away with. Right. Because I know we all believe about this so much. So we do. We can all get on that soapbox together. (laughs) (laughs) I can't help it, man. Um, What I think I'm taking away today personally is I'm recommitting myself 
to supporting families via the parents. I always think about the help that I do is directly to, to the adults, right? I don't think I serve families, so to speak, right? But today when I was listening um, and I think about the work that I do with my with the adults that I work with, it is actually indirectly serving families. And I hope that any organization um, that has members who are in this space of mobility, they see that investing directly in the adults or in their families through support, even if it's something simple like a book or offering programs like all of us offer, um, that they see the bigger picture in that. So thank you for that. All right. I will wrap us up. Your books are are mirrors for those who have lived this life. They are eye openers for parents who are monocultural and haven't. Um, and they are strategic handbooks on next steps. So definitely check it out. I, I was thinking about the quote I wanted to end on, which I usually do. And um, the one I wanted to choose is from Jordan Sarah Weatherhead. And it was um, the quote, because when it comes to my offspring, I will fight with the fangs of a wolf and the claws of a dragon. <laughs> no one or nothing will stop me from protecting them. That is the quote I wanted. <laughs> I wanted to choose, but that is from the protective place. So instead, I landed with um, a more balanced quote from Doug Flanders. He says, no parent can childproof the world but a parent's job is to world-proof the child. And I think that is a little bit about what you're talking about through your work um, and the, the preventative care and the support we can give them. So thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next time on In Transit. Um. <laughs>